Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Stephen Unu, an editor here at Ed Surge. Think back to what you still remember from science class. No, there's no need to strain your brain recalling the particulars of cellular mitosis or the periodic table. Instead, consider the overarching theme laid down as groundwork in every class from biology to physics. For many people, that may bring to mind the scientific method, the five-step process for analyzing problems, collecting data, and coming to a well-supported conclusion. But what if the scientific method is actually inaccurate, or at best reductive? What if it's giving us the wrong idea about how rigorous work is done by scientists? Unusual hypothesis, no? Well, that's the argument made by John Rudolph, an education professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of How We Teach Science, What's Changed and Why It Matters. Rudolph joins us this week to talk about the fascinating history of teaching the subject in the U.S. and why we're still searching for the right approach. Along the way, we also tackle the perils of teaching climate change in schools and why all those AP science classes might not be the best use of students' time. You might not get blinded by science Thomas Dolby style, but after listening to Rudolph, you may just see things in a new light. Tell me a little bit about the book, which does focus uh, quite a bit on the history of science. Yeah, so the book is How We Teach Science, What's Changed and Why It Matters. And, and it started actually with, um, I, I did an, an earlier book on uh, the science education reform during the Cold War after Sputnik. And in going through the archives, the great thing about the post-war period is that scientists, you know, with the atomic bomb and everything, they have great archives of materials. And, and so all these records and papers have been saved. And so going through the letters of some of these scientists who became interested in science education after Sputnik and after the war, um, there were some really rich conversations. And, and as they began to look at uh, what was going on in science classrooms, they, they sort of zeroed in on the scientific method. They said, what there was some very colorful language about this crap about the scientific method they teach in schools. Uh, and, and it caught my eye. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, there's something about the process of science or how science is done that seems really important to them. And, uh, and so then I began with this book to look at how has the process of science or the scientific method been taught going back to when science first appeared in schools in the early 1800s to the present. And it turned out to be a really interesting story about sort of tensions between professional educators and what, how they tried to uh, portray the nature of scientific work and scientists who said, no, that's not how science is done. This is how science is done. Um, and back and forth over the last 130, 140 years. And so the book looks at sort of that historical story story. And then it, it um, gives a rationale for, well, why is this important? Why do we care how the nature of science is taught or the process of science? And, and it turns out there's a, a lot to be interested in or concerned about with how we teach the process of science to students. Yeah. So what are some of those lessons from the, the past that can kind of inform our present? So, so one of the shifts that takes place is in the early uh, or middle 1800s, science is, is brought in as this, um, it, it's called an information subject. 
we should teach it because it's sort of a utilitarian, useful thing. We know how the world works. We can get things done. And, and so science was then taught very much as here are the facts of the world. Learn these facts and, and you'll be able to do things. Um, and that was the justification for why it was in schools. And, and that shifted in the later 1800s as, as these scientists came back from Europe with their, uh, the, the laboratory study they had done in Germany and other places around Europe. And they introduced not teaching just by rote, by memorization. They said students should work in laboratories and do science to learn science. And that was the beginning of the laboratory method. And so that is this early time period that was then once education sort of grew and developed and more and more students went to school, uh, science education wasn't for such a, a select group of students. It was for the masses. And so then, you know, along comes John Dewey, who says science should be used in everyday life. Here's a, here's a way of thinking the problem method. And this is what he introduced as what commonly is thought of as the scientific method. You know, there's a problem, you gather evidence, you come to a conclusion. And, and so that's this first introduction to the scientific method, this five-step method. Long and the short of it, in terms of the, the uh, lessons for today, I guess I would say, are that, one, it's, it, it matters whether the method is something that students think anyone can do, uh, or if it's something that's just the province of experts in the scientific research fields, for example. And this was the challenge, the struggle that happened in the, in the post-war period. The scientists said the five-step scientific method is a not accurate description of how science works, and it gives the public the impression that anybody can do science. And the scientists were arguing for sort of their privileged position in society, that, that no, it's, it's this much more complicated thing that depends on scientific expertise. The public should support science, but they can't, they shouldn't control science or they shouldn't think anyone can do science. And so there was this cultural uh, argument they were making, I guess, essentially for, for the, the privileged place of their expertise in society. And so when we think about what we teach about how science works, it matters in terms of how the public sees their ability to participate in science or not participate in science. Is it something anyone can do or is it something that only scientists can do? Um, and so there's that, that's one consequence or that's one lesson, I guess, from, from the past. I mean, another one is this, just this notion that ever since that time period, there was always this view that the best way to teach science was to have students do science. Sort of this notion that science pedagogy should be the same thing as the process of science. And that's been problematic, as I show in the book, historically, because one of the reasons is almost no teachers, high school teachers, middle school teachers, have actually done science. They're not scientific, uh, have no expertise in scientific research, and that, yet they're supposed to lead students through the process of science, and it's proven to be really problematic and difficult. And they revert to teaching almost by rote these steps of a scientific method. That's really interesting. Uh, but if you take away students from doing science, is there a risk of making it inaccessible, considering you write in the book that you still need a lot of public support for science? Is there a risk of disengagement? I don't think that I would argue that you, you take students away from doing science. I think that 
that that shouldn't be the only avenue to understanding science. I think there's an important, there are larger things to learn about science. There's certainly the big ideas, the theories, the, the way we think the world works, that's important. Uh, how science is done is important for students to understand. And part of that learning can come from um, the students doing science. But they, there's also a rec- there should be a recognition. Often that just reverts to these typical um, narrow experimental lab activities that students do where, oh, you control a variable, you do an intervention, you measure the result. And that doesn't begin to capture the complexity of science. And so I think we need to broaden uh, what we teach students about how science works to think about you know, macroevolutionary change. How, how do we, you know, speciation events, you don't do an experiment. To demonstrate that, um, you you gather indirect evidence, you make arguments for, from historical patterns in fossil data or biogeographic distributions, things like that. That's a different way of doing science than sort of a narrow experimental version of science. And you know, this is the problem we run into with uh, climate change issues. There's not a way to easily demonstrate oh, I can prove through doing an experiment that climate change is happening and humans are causing it. It's a very complex process by which science, scientists are making this argument that, that there's this increase in the temperature of the, of the earth and it's caused by humans and it relies on historical trend data, it relies on advanced uh, computer modeling. And, and so what I would argue for is having students participate or do some of these things, but a range of uh, methods of science and, the, and understand that, that different phenomena use different types of scientific methodologies and techniques and appreciate then that science is many things, not just one thing. And, and I think that's, that's an important lesson to learn. Uh, so there's a, another way to teach science too, which focuses on the disciplines themselves and content. And you write in the book that it's kind of like a pendulum. We, we, depending on the generation that's being taught, we switch back and forth between teaching disciplines and teaching uh, an emphasis on the scientific method. Can you talk a little bit about where we are in that pendulum? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, so there was this time period uh, after World War II and Sputnik where in reaction to the scientific method, there was a reassertion of scientific disciplinary knowledge. This was actually sort of the structure of the disciplines movement that came in the, in the 1960s. And the scientists were primarily involved and they focused on the the complex interaction between process and content knowledge. Um, And, and this notion of, of science should be thought of as an inquiry, uh, a process of inquiry. And, and they tried to get students to create or engage in these inquiry activities but it was this very vague, holistic uh, idea of how science works that was very difficult for teachers to implement because they didn't do it. They'd never done it. And they were trying to take these curricular materials that were written by, you know, sometimes Nobel laureate scientists and put them, implement them in the classroom. And there was clearly a misunderstanding of the culture of the classroom versus what scientists thought teachers should do and so on. And so the most recent era we're in is this this next generation science standards um and this is this came right on the heels of the national research councils the national the national science education standards which had an inquiry focus which wasn't working well so ngss shifted to think about 
scientific practices is what they called it, the practice of science. And they broke this holistic notion of inquiry down into these four or five um, kinds of practice. Like students should be able to make arguments from evidence. They should be able to develop and use models. They should be able to ask questions and define problems. And what they were doing was they were saying, in a way, okay, the inquiry, this, this holistic approach was too challenging for teachers. Let's break it down for them and give them these tasks, these elements of scientific practice. And from one perspective, it'll, it'll help. Um, from another perspective, it almost takes you back to the, the five steps of the scientific method. You, you make it so um, scripted, like, oh, we're going to learn today. We're going to do arguments from evidence, kids. Um, and they lose a picture of what science is as a holistic activity. And it's, it's challenging. And, and so that's where we're at right now. And, um, and we'll see, time will tell whether or not uh, that's going to pan out, I guess. Um, so you, one of the most interesting things in the conclusion was that you wrote that um, economic concerns also kind of influence what's being taught in science. And now there's, there's a big push for college and career readiness. Uh, can you talk about how that, you know, influences what's actually being taught in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, you have this push with the next generation science standards. There's definitely a focus on wanting um, students to engage in the process of science. At the same time, we have this, just the world we live in with the increasing income inequality and, and parents wanting the, to get their kids having a leg up. And so schools are all about, oh, we want to offer more advanced science classes, more AP classes. You got the pressure from um, state agencies and, and groups with increased standardized testing, um, and so you have states and districts focused on student achievement test scores. And so when you look at students, their course taking patterns, they want to take X number of AP classes, not because they want to develop a deep understanding of what science is, but because they want to gather these these sort of uh, credentials that'll increase their admission chances to college or the elite colleges they want to get into. And the parents and, and the districts focused on increased test scores, it, it inevitably leads to a, a shift to focus on content knowledge because that's easy to assess. It's easy to test. It's very difficult to attest students' understanding of how science works, the process of science. And so there's been this sort of just cultural push to uh, sort of technical training, vocational, college prep, which, which really puts the learning of how science works at a disadvantage, which is, which, I mean, that's what we're seeing today in, with this, you know, people questioning the legitimacy of science. They're, they're, this is right at a time where we really need the public to understand more about the nuances of how science works and, and that it's, it's important and, and that we can trust the knowledge that comes from science. I mean, our survival is going to depend on it, I'm sure. Yeah. Is, is teaching things like climate change going to be getting that into the curriculum? Is that going to be a hard sell uh, in today's world where there's something of a mistrust of science? Uh, it's going to be a hard sell for a couple of reasons. One is that I think a lot of, I mean, they, they, you know, there have been some studies done of, of how science teachers themselves understand climate change and, and they don't always have a complete grasp of of where that information has come from, how 
that science works. Um, and so it's a challenge, again, always to, to get from what the scientists know or what we think should be taught into the classrooms across the country. And then you have this sort of false, false balance treatment where they sense the, the, the notion of uh, this is controversial. I need to be careful about what I say. A lot of times, you know, the, the control, the political authority and control comes from local school districts. And so those teachers need to be careful about how they approach these things. Otherwise, the kids go home and tell their parents that the teacher's telling me, you know, it's the same problem we ran into with, with teaching evolution in the schools. Um, and a lot of teachers will shy away from that because they know it's controversial. And again, that's another perfect example of the reason it's controversial, both climate change and evolution, is because there's not a good public understanding of what the how science leads to that understanding because they think, oh, you should be able to do an experiment and prove or not prove that evolution occurs or that climate change has occurred. But that's not how science works in those fields. So what is the benefit of having a citizenry who are well-informed on the different ways science can be done and on the history of science? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big benefits is that we can move toward a, a sort of a democratic political system that that actually makes decisions based on empirical evidence. I mean, you've got the whole thing with the anti-vaxxers and the, the people who have this continued distrust of expertise and science. And if we're going to move forward in this increasingly complex world we live in, we need to rely on the most, the best, most reliable knowledge we can get. And so to have masses of people discounting the, the, the knowledge of science just because, well, for no reason at all, for, for you know, something they read on Facebook or something that, that isn't supported by uh, a good, solid understanding of how science works is, is just problematic for, for everybody. Yeah. So what can an individual teacher who is listening to this do to really rethink science instruction and the way that it's meted out in their classroom? I mean, one of the things that, so I teach a science methods course and, and for pre-service teachers, and, and I try to get across the idea that, number one, the con- just getting students to memorize content shouldn't be your goal. The, the understanding your audience, I mean, most of the people who come into my classroom who are going to be science teachers, you know, you ask them questions about, well, why do you, why are you going to teach what you're teaching? And, and they'll say, well, you know, they'll need it in college. They'll need it for the science classes they take in college. And, oh, they should have an AP class because that'll give them a leg up on going to college. And I ask them, how many, how many people do you think have like four-year college degrees walking around this country? You know, for, for them, everyone they know has the college degree. And, and so they'll say, oh, I don't know, 70% or 80%. And then you tell them, you know, only 31% of the public has a, a four-year bachelor's degree. And then you ask, well, how many of those, what percent of bachelor's degrees that are awarded in a given year are in any related science field? Well, I don't know, um, 30%? No, it's only 10%. And so you have the fact that, you know, uh, when you take the, the population as a whole, all the students in their classes, and you think about how many actually go to college, how many graduate from college, of the ones who graduate from college, how many majored in a science, um, the numbers tail off quickly. And you get to, you know, maybe 
10% or fewer of those students um, that they're sitting in their class with are going to have any appreciable deep uh, future. You know, certainly not very few are going to have a career in a science-related field. Um, and so you've got, what do you do with the 80 or 90% of the students? You need to think of a different way of teaching science than thinking, I need to prepare them for college science, uh, which typically ends up being a lot of content memorization. And so I do what I can, and I think teachers should do what they can to think about what does someone, what does a citizen or a member of the general public need to understand? And I think that has more to do with how science works than with the content of the scientific disciplines. Do you think we're losing students uh, who might otherwise be interested in science by focusing too much on the content? Or is that something that future scientists need to need to be exposed to, to know if they're interested in going into the field and studying it rigorously? Yeah, that'd be an awfully inefficient system if you, if you say, okay, we're going to expose high school students, the broad mass of high school students, to sort of high-level, rigorous content on the off chance that 1% of all high school graduates are going to end up as scientists. Um, you know, there, there's actually probably an excess number of scientists right now in this country. Uh, uh, there's a book recently put out by um, uh, Tietelbaum called Falling Behind that he, he questions whether or not we actually need more scientists. And actually the scientists uh, in the post-Sputnik period who got really involved in in reforming science education themselves weren't interested in creating more scientists. They, they said, we have plenty of excellent scientists and their goal in the curricula, curricular materials that they were developing were all about creating a public that understood how science worked, sort of a general scientific literacy. And so, yeah, the focus on content and rigor turns a lot of people away. And I don't think, uh, shifting to a more conceptual understanding or one that's focused on how science works or how the public and, and society draws upon, interacts with science, more of a social science approach, you might think. Uh, it's not, we're not going to sacrifice our scientific future by doing that. We're probably going to create a public that's much more understanding of, of the role of science in society. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, thank you so much. I, I really, that was all the questions I had. I, I really appreciate your time, John. Yeah, thanks very much for talking to me. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Special thanks to John Rudolph for joining us. Again, his book is How We Teach Science, What's Changed and Why It Matters. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Each week we feature conversations like this one, so please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by my colleague Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Until then. Thank you.